0: Welcome to the Michigan Publishing Podcast where we dive into the knowledge and innovation that drives our leadership in academic publishing and digital initiatives and technologies. I'm Elizabeth Demers, the Editorial Director and Political Science Acquiring Editor for the University of Michigan Press, as well as the host for this episode. One of the latest initiatives of the University of Michigan Press is our Democracy and Debate Collection. Developed with the support of the U of M Presidential Debate and Theme Semester Committees, The Press presents an interdisciplinary collection of 25 books that explore the core tensions in American political culture, tensions that erupt every four years during the presidential election. The reading list offers an opportunity for students and others to experience the richest, most comprehensive scholarship available today. Readers will find books that contextualize their own experiences of voting in America, along with big-picture analyses of leadership, activism, and international pressures, as well as critiques of the democratic processes that control who gets to sit in the chair and who gets to pull the lever. All of the books in the collection have been made available free to read through the end of the year through the University of Michigan Press eBook collection available on Fulcrum, Michigan Publishing's platform designed to provide the most ideal and accessible reading experience for humanities and social science scholarship. As I was selecting the titles for the democracy and debate reading list, one book that I knew had to be included as an essential read was The Primary Rules, Parties, Voters, and Presidential Nominations by Caitlin E. Jewett, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University. Published by the press in January, 2019, The primary rules illuminates the balance of power that the parties, states, and voters assert on the presidential nominations. Dr. Jewett is here today to share with us the research behind her book and the key ideas that demonstrate how, while political parties set rules to limit voter influence, those rules don't always work as the parties expect. Caitlin, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So can you first tell us about the inspiration behind this book and the key thesis that drove your research?
1: Absolutely. As an undergraduate, I was a political science major, and my college, Hartwick College in Oneonta, New York, had a program of J-term. And so students took one intensive class for the month of January, and there were many study abroad trips available. Um, Rather than choose to go somewhere more exotic and warm i spent the month of january taking a political science class in new hampshire and we followed the new hampshire primary and the presidential nominations and really studied the process while also volunteering for presidential campaigns and being in new hampshire in the lead up to the primary and for primary day i really saw the excitement and the enthusiasm And the candidates were everywhere. They were in diners and in people's homes. They were in small town hall meetings and huge auditoriums. And everyone was interested and attentive to the primary and what would happen. And then after the primary, I returned to New York. And no one seemed to care or really realize that there was a presidential nomination going on. And by the time New York The New York primary happened several months later. The nominations were already decided. Voters in New York had no real say in who would become the presidential nominees. So it really struck me, the variation across states and presidential nominations, and how voters in different states have completely different electoral contexts and perspectives on the nomination. And so that led me to explore how this variation matters, how the rules vary across states. And I realized that there's a lot more variation than most people realize, and I'm fascinated by it and contend that it shapes the whole process.
0: It's fascinating. I've watched the New Hampshire primaries on TV, and I love that energy, and I've never experienced it, uh, not having lived there. So... I love that you talk about this difference um, between this New New Hampshire energy and, and what was happening in New York. Can you talk about the similarities and differences in primary rules between the political parties?
1: Yes. So the national parties set rules governing the presidential nomination process, and then states are allowed to select rules as long as they are permitted within the national party rules. And so there's often coordination between the national parties. For instance, they try generally to start and end the nomination season around the same time, though in some years they fail to coordinate and that hasn't happened. But the parties do differ in other important ways. So, for instance, the parties differ significantly on the delicate allocation rule, which is the procedures used to translate the votes or the outcomes of the primaries and the caucuses into delegates at the National Convention. For decades now, the Democratic Party has mandated some form of proportional representation, whereas the Republican Party was notably silent on the delicate allocation rule until 2012. And so that meant for a long time, states were allowed to select any delegate allocation rule, including winner-take-all, to translate votes into Republican delegates. However, in more recent years, the Republican Party has become more active in mandating specific delegate allocation rules, depending on when the state's primary caucus is scheduled for. But the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have different philosophies and rules about how to mandate those delegates be allocated.
0: I know in your book you talk about um, how the states and the the national parties um, don't necessarily have to line up. Um, And so I'm interested in how these primary rules vary state to state within the political parties and if the parties themselves get frustrated by the states just doing whatever they want.
1: Yes, absolutely. So the rules vary across states for a single party and within states across parties. And there absolutely is this tension between the national parties and the states. And so for instance, Montana in 2008 is a really great example. In Montana in 2008, Republicans held a caucus on February 5th, and it was closed to only Republican voters, and they allocated their delegates in a winner-take-all fashion. So the candidate that won the most votes captured all of the delegates in Montana. Meanwhile, the Democrats in Montana in 2008 didn't hold a caucus in February like the Republicans did, but they held a primary election In the beginning of June. And that primary election was open to any registered voter as long as they hadn't participated in the Republican caucus and they allocated their delegates using proportional representation rather than winner-take-all. So even in one state in the same year, Republicans and Democrats can create very different systems. And then even if we look at one party in one year, like the 2016 Republicans, we see significant variation across state. So everyone um, typically recognizes that Iowa holds the first caucus. And in 2016, the Iowa Republican caucus was on February 1st and was closed to only Republican identifiers. And 11 Republican candidates competed in that caucus. And proportional representation was used. And turnout was about 15%. In contrast, Virginia held a primary a month after Iowa that was open to any registered voter because Virginia doesn't register voters by party, but only five candidates were still in the race that month later after Iowa voted, but turnout was significantly higher at 35% turnout. New York voted even later, holding a primary in mid-April, but at that point there were only three candidates in the race with 19% turnout in the primary. And then New Jersey held a primary on June 7th, but only 7% of New Jersey Republicans turned out to vote in large part because there was only one candidate, Donald Trump, left in the race. And so voters in New Jersey had no meaningful say in who would become the nominee. And so both within states across parties and within parties across states in a given election year, the nomination can look very different, and this has incredible implications. And as you also asked about, there is certainly this tension between national parties and the rules and what the national party wants and what the states want. And we often see this with regard to front-loading or when states schedule their contests. Front-loading refers to states wanting to cluster their contests early on in the nomination calendar often to gain influence in the process because, for instance, New Jersey may not want its voters to vote in June when there's only one candidate left in the race. And so the national parties often would prefer a sort of slower buildup to the nomination race, but states have an incentive to move early on in the nomination calendar, which is why we see so many states vote on Super Tuesday.
0: I'm glad that you mentioned front loading. I thought it was one of the most interesting parts of your very interesting book. And I think one of the issues with front loading, if I'm reading your book correctly, is that it it does allow more people, or the idea is that it allows more citizens to have more influence on um, the voting or on the impact uh, of the voter. Their votes would count more, and. Um, you know, you talk about the primary rules are arguably intended to limit the impact of voters. I love how your book starts in 1968 with Hubert Humphrey, who didn't even participate in any primaries and still became the nominee um, due to party elites. So if you could talk about how these primary rules are intended to limit the impact of voters and kind of the history of that, and how often do these rules succeed in negating the average citizen's vote? Because the Humphrey experience kind of pointed me in the direction that parties were more interested in having um, voter participation. But that's not actually true. It's more complicated than that, I guess, is the, what I'm trying to say.
1: Yes, it's absolutely complicated. So the rules definitely limit the impact of voters and that- what say they have on the outcome of the nomination. I don't know that I would go as far as to say that the r- rules negate the average citizen's vote um, because voters now have more of a say in selecting the presidential nominee than ever before, right? In contrast to the Humphrey example in 1968, voters do have the opportunity to participate in primaries and caucuses, and the votes that are cast there do have an impact. On the outcome of the nominations and the way that the delegates vote um, at the national conventions. And many people often bring up Donald Trump in 2016 as the example of this. That was not what the party wanted. If we were still under a system where voters had no say in the process, Donald Trump would not have become the Republican Party nominee in 2016, but the rules do affect the extent to which voters are able to have a meaningful, impactful say, and it shapes their influence. The way we count votes, whether we use proportional representation or winner-take-all or some other rule matters that can advantage and disadvantage certain candidates and can even affect which candidate wins. We also know that caucuses have much lower turnout than primaries. So by instituting caucuses, that automatically limits the number of people that will show up and have a say by making it a more costly form of participation. And the sequential nature of the nomination, with states voting over the course of several months, also means that some voters do not have as much of a say in the outcome as others. Iowa voters always shape the trajectory of the race. They always have a meaningful say in who becomes the nominee. Voters in other states routinely vote after there is a presumptive nominee and have no ability to have a meaningful say on who becomes the nominee. And that is one aspect that I revealed in the research in my book is that the parties often indicate that front-loading is bad or has a negative impact on the process and doesn't allow for meaningful participation. But I actually show the opposite, that in front-loaded nominations, voters in more states have the opportunity to participate because they are clustered early on these primaries and caucuses before there is a presumptive nominee.
0: So um, do you think that front-loading will continue to be an issue for parties as we move forward?
1: I think the front loading is not going anywhere unless there's a dramatic overhaul. Um, the parties, particularly the Republican Party, has become a little bit more effective and successful in recently in 2016 of sort of keeping front loading more at bay, whereas their attempts. In 2012, and the party's attempts in 2008 really failed. So, the part the national parties are trying to figure out how to keep the states in line. But front loading was not a huge issue in the 2020 nominations. And so, I wouldn't expect that as something that the national parties will really worry about headed into 2024 because the parties tend to look at what went wrong in the last nomination and try to fix that without as much of a historical perspective as I think they need to have.
0: Looking at the last few presidential elections, can you shed any light on how, at the same time that one party was perceived as having no control over their final nominee, the Republicans, the other, the Democrats, was accused by some of rigging the nomination process?
1: Right. Well, first off, I would contend that the Democratic Party didn't rig the nomination process as much as it had rules that would benefit a specific candidate or type of candidate. And as someone who studies electoral rules, all rules advantage someone. And from a rational, self interested perspective, It didn't surprise me that the Democratic Party would have utilized rules that would benefit a more establishment type of candidate like Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders. Um, But in 2016, the Republican Party was certainly accused of losing control of its process And that's in part because the party couldn't decide which establishment candidate to coalesce around. But it's also reflective of the fact that voters are now given more of a say in the nomination process. And so it's no longer solely elites that are selecting the nominee like it was um, for Hubert Humphrey's nomination. But often people describe the current presidential nomination process as one that is in the hands of voters. And what my work really tries to say is that, yes, it's more in the hands of voters than ever before, but it is still shaped and affected
0: by these rules put in place by elites. That was one of the things I really enjoyed about your book was that that you identified the competing priorities in crafting rules for presidential primaries, the competing priorities of the parties. More voter participation was certainly one of them after 1968. More control over the nominee. More control by elites. Can you talk about the key reforms of the late 1960s and 70s in the presidential nomination process that got us where we are today?
1: Yes. So the McGovern-Fraser Commission stemmed out of the 1968 National Convention, which, as we've mentioned, um, nominated Hubert Humphrey even though he did not participate in a single Democratic primary that year. And the McGovern-Fraser Commission was designed to take power out of these smoke-filled rooms where elites selected a nominee without input from voters and placed that power squarely in the hands of voters. Um, These reforms created what we now refer to as the modern era of the presidential nomination system, but they had unintended consequences. The McGovern-Frazier Commission, for instance, did not expect the dramatic shift away from caucuses and towards primaries that resulted in subsequent years. And for many years, the Democratic Party was uncertain if that was an advisable sort of shift towards primaries. The parties have also been attempting to find the right balance of voter and elite input over the years. And so, shortly after the initial reforms, it seemed to the party that the reforms had perhaps gone too far, right? Placed this power to select a nominee too much in the hands of voters. And that's why the Democratic Party in the 1980s introduced super delegates, these slots reserved for party elites and elected officials who do not have to um, vote at the national convention tied in any way to what happens in their states or what the voters want. Then just recently between 2016 and 2020, the Democratic Party started tinkering with this balance once again by changing the role of superdelegates with the intention to reduce their perceived impact on the process. So the parties are still continuing to tinker with the rules and try to figure out How do we create the right balance where voters are deciding, but what elites want and believe is best for the party also remains important?
0: There's an interesting um, moment. I forget which party you're talking about in the book uh, where you say, um, there's a quote that says, if you want to be part of the process, join the party. Um, And so I was sort of curious about um, how, how how much more influence the average voter would have if they were part of a political party.
1: Right. And so in some states, you have to be part of the political party to even vote in the primary. Um, So I grew up in New York state and first registered to vote in New York. And so New York has closed primaries. And so if you register as an independent, you can participate in neither party's primary. That's very different than the situation that exists in Virginia, where I live today, where you can be you don't register by party. And so if I wanted to, one year I could vote in the Democratic Party and the next year I could vote in the Republican Party. And when I go into that polling place, they just ask me which ballot I wanted. So in some states, you literally need to become a member of the party to participate in the process.
0: So based on the 2020 primary season, do you anticipate um, any major changes for the 2024 election? You touched on this a little bit earlier.
1: So there will definitely, there are always changes at the state level. States move their primaries. They switch from caucus to primaries. Um, We'll need to see sort of what happens at the state level. As for the, at the national level, what the national parties will do, some of that will be decided um, anxiously awaiting what happens at the Democratic National Convention. Um, But I would guess that the Democratic Party may continue to tinker with superdelegates and their role. Though in large part that will depend on if Biden wins the nom- or wins the general election or not, we tend to see the party that loses the general election adjust their nomination rules. So if Biden wins the general election, the Democrats will be much more content with their system in part because they will view it as the process worked. It got us a candidate who can win in November. Um, but if Biden doesn't win, I would expect that the Democratic Party will go back and look at whether they really should have reduced to the influence of superdelegates, especially because while well, from a party perspective, it worked out OK in the end, there was concern early on among many party elites in uh, sort of January, February 2020 that the voters would select Sanders. And that was not what the Democratic Party establishment would have preferred. And they were fearful that perhaps they had made a mistake in reducing the power of superdelegates.
0: And just to to finish up this idea, do you think the coin flips in, was it Iowa and somewhere else, had any influence on the ultimate um, nomination of Hillary Clinton?
1: No, they don't have the coin flips. um, While interesting, are not sort of seen as consequential because the way it works in Iowa, the caucuses actually select delegates to the county convention and it moves forward um, all the way until they get national convention delegates. And so it's much less impactful than it actually was perceived to be in the media.
0: So if you had to pick one takeaway from your book that American citizens should keep in mind as they vote, what would that takeaway be?
1: That even though the rules absolutely shape the outcome and can limit and influence how voters have a say in the process, the presidential nomination process does give voters now more of a say in who will be the nominee than it ever has. But I also think it's important that voters recognize the parties are private organizations and they have other goals besides true democracy, true popular participation, like choosing a nominee that reflects their party platform and selecting a nominee that reflects the will of the voters is not necessarily their ultimate goal. Their ultimate goal in this polarized era is to nominate a candidate that can win elections.
0: Caitlin, this is terrific. Thank you so much for your time today. And I I just found your book fascinating. I learned so much about the primary process and how we elect a president, and I feel much more able to go into the voting booth in 2024 now, um, knowing how the system works better.
1: I'm so glad. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. The primary rules is available to purchase at press.umich.edu. And through the end of the year, you can also access a free to read version online via the DOI link. For more information about the Democracy and Debate collection, please visit publishing.umich.edu to learn more and access multimedia supplements to this collection. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Michigan Publishing Podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss a show. You can also follow the University of Michigan Press on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram for posts about episodes and other relevant content about our work. This podcast was produced by Teresa Schmidt and Linnell White with the support of Michigan Publishing at the University of Michigan.